Chapter 9 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 9, Austerlitz. Ulm, a proclamation of Napoleon, occupation of Vienna, Austerlitz, peace of Pressburg. The threat of invasion had created the most profound alarm in England, and British diplomacy had exerted itself to the utmost to provoke a continental war that should draw Napoleon's great army away from its camps on the coasts of the Channel. In this it was successful, for in the autumn of 1805 Austria and Russia, having previously entered into a treaty with Great Britain, began moving their armies towards the French frontiers. War had long been foreseen. The growing strength of France, the brutally asserted ambition of the new-made emperor, the losses and humiliations suffered by Austria in two previous wars, all tended to bring about this result. Napoleon had long been preparing for it. He abandoned without hesitation his camps along the ocean and began transferring the army thence to the heart of Germany. The march began on the 27th of August. It was some 500 miles. On the 14th of October, Munich, the capital of Bavaria, was occupied. A week later, the first Austrian army had been virtually destroyed. General Mack, the Austrian commander, had invaded Bavaria in September, and thence advanced towards the Rhine, eventually occupying a place at Ulm, facing the Black Forest. He expected that the French would advance from some point between Basel and Mayence, and appear in this direction. Napoleon did everything possible to lull Mack into security. He proceeded in person to Paris, handed over the command of the army to Murat, and ostentatiously sent him to Strasbourg. He moved large detachments of dragoons and light cavalry into the Duchy of Baden and into the Black Forest, simulating a screen behind which the army was concentrating. Later, when it became necessary for him to leave for the front, public attention was again called to Strasbourg by the imperial baggage taking this route, and by the emperors also following it. While these demonstrations were keeping Mack motionless at Ulm, anxiously watching the debouchés of the Black Forest, the seven French army corps, starting from a base that stretched from Boulogne to Hanover, were sweeping to the northwest of Mack, through Mayence, Koblenz, and Kassel, circling around his right wing, and finally sweeping down from the north, onto the valley of the Danube in his rear. It was a repetition of the strategy of Marengo, and the Austrians were half-beaten before a shot was fired. The fighting that followed was desultory. Isolated Austrian divisions tried to force their way through and escape, but were in nearly every case overpowered, defeated, or captured. Mack himself, with 20,000 men, surrendered at Ulm on the 20th of October. The events of the campaign were summed up, with some exaggeration, in one of Napoleon's bulletins. It will serve to illustrate his history and character to give the text of one of these documents. The one that follows is that which records the downfall of Mack. Soldiers of the Grande Armée, in fifteen days we have finished a campaign. Our intentions have been carried out. We have driven the troops of the House of Austria from Bavaria and re-established our ally on his throne. This army that had so ostentatiously and imprudently placed itself on our borders is now destroyed. 
but what cares England for that? Her object is gained. We are no longer at Boulogne, and her subsidies will be neither diminished nor increased. Of the hundred thousand men who made up this army, sixty thousand are prisoners. They will fill the places of our conscripts in the labors of the field. Two hundred guns, the whole train, ninety colors, all their generals are ours. Only fifteen thousand men have escaped. Soldiers, I had prepared you for a great battle, but thanks to the bad maneuvers of the enemy, I have reached equal results without taking any risk. And, unprecedented event in the history of nations, this result has been gained at an expense of less than fifteen hundred men out of action. Soldiers, this success is due to your unlimited confidence in your emperor, to your patience in supporting all kinds of fatigue and privations, and to your splendid valor. But we cannot rest yet. You are impatient for a second campaign. The Russian army, drawn by the gold of England from the furthest limits of the earth, must suffer the same fate. In this contest, the honor of the French infantry is more especially at stake. For the second time the question must be decided, as already once before in Switzerland and in Holland, whether the French infantry is the first or the second in Europe. Among them are no generals from whom I have any glory to win. My whole anxiety shall be to obtain the victory with the least effusion of blood possible. My soldiers are my children. Napoleon Whatever may be thought of Napoleon's rhetoric by the reader, there is one point that must be kept steadily in mind, that it produced the results he expected. It was designed to inspire the morale of his troops, and it succeeded in doing so. All ranks were full of confidence in the genius of their great captain, and the large proportion of veterans from the wars of the Republic steadied the dash of the troops with a leaven of solidity and skilled leadership. The victorious army with which Napoleon now found himself in Bavaria has been generally conceded to have been the finest he ever commanded. He now had the following military problem to face. Some 150 miles or more due east, down the valley of the Danube, lay Vienna. Between him and the capital, and the northeastern Bohemia, were various Austrian and Russian corps, large in the aggregate, but not yet concentrated. To the southeast, the Archduke Charles was retiring towards the Austrian capital from Italy, followed by Marshal Massena with a large army. A less bold general than Napoleon would probably have given his enemies enough time to concentrate in front of Vienna, but the emperor waited not one day, and urged his columns rapidly down the valley of the Danube. There was no serious resistance offered, and on the 31st of October, the French cavalry under Murat reached the Austrian capital. Only eleven days had passed since the capitulation of Ulm, three hundred miles away. Footnote. A large part of the French army was at Munich and beyond when Ulm capitulated. End footnote. From Vienna, the French marched northwards towards Moravia, where the Emperor Francis and the Tsar Alexander had now assembled a large army. Napoleon hoped for a decisive battle, and his opponents gratified his desire by advancing to meet him. The position of Napoleon, in spite of his great success at Ulm, was in reality very critical. The internal affairs of France were disquieting, chiefly owing to a grave financial crisis, but what was perhaps more important, the military situation was far from sound. 
The French army was now 400 miles or more from its base and much weakened by detachments. The line of communications ran through southern Germany, of which the states professed amicable sentiments, but to the north Prussia was avowedly on the point of declaring war and had concentrated a large army under Marshal Mollendorf. It was evidently the policy of Russia and Austria to keep Napoleon's army employed in Moravia, without coming to battle, until the action of Prussia could take effect on his line of communications. But the impetuosity of the young Tsar and of his advisers threw counsels of prudence to the winds and led him into the very course Napoleon hoped he would adopt. For several days the emperor slowly retired before the advancing armies, having selected a position near Austerlitz from which he expected to derive great advantage. The French army took station there on the night of the 1st of December, Kutuzov with the two allied emperors, disposing his troops on the rising ground opposite. Napoleon's left was solidly established on a hill named the Zantum that had been well entrenched. His center was strongly placed on ground that was not likely to tempt the enemy to a decisive attack, but the right was far otherwise situated. It was drawn up on flat and unfavorable ground, and appeared to the Russians weak in numbers and exposed. The command of this wing was given to the dogged Davou, whose orders were to hold on to this position as long as possible, while at another point the emperor was deciding the fortune of the day. Davout's wing was in reality far better placed than it appeared to be, and he had strong defensive positions on which to fall back, protected by water and swampy ground. Having thus placed his right wing as a bait to the enemy, Napoleon crowded the corps of Soult, of Bernadotte, of Oudinot, and the Imperial Guard out of sight behind some buildings and rising ground in his centre. With these troops he proposed dealing the decisive stroke. Kutuzov arrived in front of the French position on the 1st of December. He had an army of some 85,000 men, and estimated his enemy at about 50,000. In this he was wrong, for Napoleon had brought in several detachments by forced marches, and had raised his numbers to about 65,000. The Russian general-in-chief decided to attack the weak French wing, and thus to possess him of the road to Vienna that lay behind it. He made his intention clear on the afternoon before the battle by moving troops from the strong plateau of Pratzen in his center down towards the hollow occupied by Davout. From the moment Napoleon observed these movements, he looked on the coming battle as already won. On the night before the battle occurred an incident that shows with what feelings the first army of the empire viewed its leader. Napoleon proceeded on foot to visit the outposts and observe the enemy, his short figure, grey coat, and little cocked hat were recognized by some grenadiers, who raised shouts of Vive l'Empereur, reminding him that the 2nd of December was the anniversary of the coronation. From man to man the enthusiasm spread, and soon all the long lines of the bivouac were up, and an improvised illumination of twisted straw wisps burst out. It astonished the Russian camps as much as it gratified the heart of Napoleon. At the earliest dawn, the two armies were in their positions for battle, and just as the first shots were fired, the sun burst through the heavy winter mist. Soon the two lines were engaged, the Austro-Russians pressing hotly on the French right. Davout disputed the ground fiercely, but was slowly forced back, 
a great part of the enemy descending from the heights at Pratzen and extending into the low land out beyond the French center. At last, Napoleon gave the signal. Staff officers dashed off in every direction, and from behind the ridge that concealed them, the dense columns of Bernadotte and Sioux marched forward on the Russian center and climbed the heights. Oudinot, with the grenadiers and part of the Imperial Guard, followed in support. Kutuzov was unprepared for such an attack. His center was strong by nature, but was now denuded of troops, and the Pratzen was soon in the hands of the French. To regain this position was essential, for, with Napoleon there, the Allies were completely cut in two. The only available reserve was the Russian Imperial Guard, and this was sent in. Fierce fighting followed but the French were not to be dislodged, and the severed right of Kutuzov rolled back defeated. In the meanwhile, Davout was still hotly engaged with the other wing, but help was coming. From the heights of Pratzen, long lines of French guns were now playing on the rear of the Russian left, while Davout still kept up the fight in front. Thus cut off and surrounded, there was nothing left but retreat. The flat ground, cut with streams and ponds, was bad for this purpose, and many of the fugitives who attempted to cross the frozen lake of Zachan broke through the ice. Probably several thousand were thus drowned. Footnote. Recent investigation shows that this was not so. End footnote. The battle cost the Allies a loss of 35,000 men and 200 guns, while the French reserves were not even brought into action, and their loss was probably not more than 5,000 men. Two days later, the Emperor Francis met Napoleon at the outposts and agreed to an armistice as a preliminary of peace. Chronology 27th of August, 1805. Grande Armée leaves Channel Camps. 14th of October, 1805. Munich occupied. 20th of October, 1805. Surrender of Mack at Ulm. 31st of October, 1805. Vienna occupied. 2nd of December, 1805, Austerlitz. 26th of December, 1805, Peace of Pressburg. Note. Bibliographical General, see page 11. In the foregoing and succeeding chapter, the military operations of Napoleon are taken consecutively from Ulm to Friedland. Political matters are left over for general consideration with the Treaty of Tilsit. For Ulm and Austerlitz, See Schönhals, Der Krieg, 05, Vienna, 1874. Stutterheim, Bataille d'Austerlitz, Hamburg, 1805, and numerous other editions. End of chapter 9. Recording by Owen Cook in Potawatomi, Ceded Land.